Amen. So um, we, we're starting a new uh, series um, as of today. Um, we have some very nice uh, graphics kindly provided by Leah Watson above me. Um, and we're looking at the book um, of Philippians. We're doing a series through the book of Philippians. Um, it's my first time ever teaching through a book of the Bible in my life. Um, so it's going to be quite a new experience um, <laughs> for me. Um, but there's two reasons for it, I guess. First of all, I really like the book of Philippians. I think it's a really encouraging book. Um, but the second is that I think that God um, has a particular message for our church that he wants to give us. And uh, the message, the theme that God has highlighted for me is about standing firm. How can we stand firm for the gospel um, in this time? And um, I think the reason for that, partly, is if you think about where we are now in Norwich, where we are in history, and, and this country, we're in a country which is very antagonistic towards Christianity. There's a huge avalanche of scepticism towards the Christian faith. But not only that, there's lots of other things that threaten to undermine our faith. Um, So in Christianity, evangelical Christianity, there are lots of distortions of the gospel, things that might um, um, send us down another route, lots of things that would entice us away from the truth that we've heard. Um, And not only that, but there are specific threats, if you think about it, within our own church. Um, We're a church of very diverse people, lots of different backgrounds, and there are always things that are threatening to challenge our unity together um, and to prize us apart and to overwhelm us. So we find ourselves in a situation where there are lots of threats that are against us. And one of the things God wants to say to us is how we can stand firm for the gospel, how we can make ourselves stand firm in this time. Um, you know, I felt a little while ago that the Lord gave me um, these verses and he said, see, I've set before you an open door. God says in Revelation, I've set before you an open door. And I think that God is saying that about our church. He's got, we've come so far, but he's saying, there are still things that I have for you that I want you to walk in in the future. Um, but it's going to be really important for us to stand firm and to um, gird ourselves with the weaponry that we need to stand firm at this time. So really, the link with that in Philippians is that Philippi was in a very similar situation. It was a church in a pagan um, uh, environment. It had lots of things threatening its existence. And so I pray that as we study this book of Philippians, we can learn some things from it that are going to really stand us firm at this time as well. So you might wonder today, we're not actually going to look much at Philippians itself, um, but but this is really to set the the context um, today. And there's just three main things that I want to bring out that I hope will set the context for where we're going today. Um, And the first one is I really want to look at the origins of the Philippian church, um, how the Philippian church came to be. If you just want to turn with me to Acts chapter 16, um, just turn me to Acts chapter 16, and we see how the Philippian church came to be in the first place. Um, I'm just going to read a few of the verses, and then we'll talk about it as we're going through. Um, 
It says, Now when they'd gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they'd come to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So the church in Philippi started supernaturally. It started with something quite miraculous happening, a dream that happened to Paul. And he saw this picture of this man, probably wondered what was going on. He woke up in the night and he saw this sort of shadowy figure before him, kind of beckoning him or maybe pleading to him, saying, come and help us, come and help us um, in this area. And that was a direct intervention of the Holy Spirit saying, Paul, I'm, stirring the di- I'm, I'm kind of directing the course of your life and I'm sending you now to um, Macedonia. And the church of Philippi was in Macedonia. So the church there had a supernatural origin. It was something that God himself had specifically called Paul to do. I mean, I believe that any work of the gospel has a supernatural origin. Any church where they're teaching the truth about Jesus, God had to call someone in the first place, didn't he, to do that? I mean, I guess at this church, we have to say that was John, wasn't it? I guess, um, you know, bless him. John, John was, John, God called John from America to this place. Um, and, and that is, you know, John was just a vessel, but that is why this church exists. So God always calls, he always supernaturally calls someone to, to start a new work for the gospel. Um, and that's what happened with Paul, and that's what happened here. But then what we see happening, if we follow through, <clears throat> it says that, therefore sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course through to Samothrace, and the next day we came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day... We went out to the riverside where prayer was customarily customarily made and we sat down and spoke to women who were there. So what you have in Philippi is you have this group of women and they're constantly seeking the Lord. They're constantly praying. And it's like a little prayer group of these women led by Lydia, this wealthy businessman, and they're seeking the Lord and they're praying. And as they're praying, um, God brings Paul to him. Isn't that amazing how, um, how Paul has received this supernatural calling and how he leads him right to, um, right to Lydia. He leads him to Lydia. And I think that's an important message for us, that it's an, in an atmosphere of prayer. It's in an atmosphere of prayer where God moves and God acts. That's why we need to be constantly seeking God. As, as we seek him, as we pray to him, um, God will be faithful to send and to do new things in our midst. So it was birthed in an atmosphere of prayer. But then what happened? Well, Lydia, um, she, because she'd been praying, she opened her heart. Her heart was soft to the Lord. She received the things that, the, um, that Paul was saying. Um, and then, basically, what happens is Paul and Silas uh, go to prayer. Um, and as they're going to prayer, suddenly, um, this shrieking, uh, possessed woman comes to them. And she's kind of shrieking and, and uh, she's saying, um, you know, these men are, pro- are proclaiming to you the most high God. These men are proclaiming to you the most high God. 
And I expect that she was saying that in maybe a mocking way or a jeering way. And after several days of having this, Paul got a little bit sick of it, to be honest. And he got sick of this con- her constant cries and her constant jeers, basically. Um, and eventually what he did, under the prompting of the Holy Spirit, is he, he cast out the demon of this slave girl. Now, I think there's another lesson for us here. There's another lesson as soon as we're walking in God's ways, as soon as we're walking for the gospel, we're going to encounter spiritual opposition. And we shouldn't be surprised when that happens. Because Satan is determined to stop people being saved. Satan wants to take as many people um, with him to hell as he can. And even at this time, Satan was trying to do that. But now another 2,000 years have passed And Satan realises that his time is very short. And so his determination to stop the gospel has increased even more. And that's what we're facing even today in this church in practical ways. We face spiritual opposition. We do have an enemy. I mean, at the end of the day, Christianity is a supernatural faith. And we believe in these spiritual realities that our eyes cannot see. Just behind this dimension is another whole dimension. Um, And it was that dimension that was coming into play and it was thwarting the gospel. Um, That's why um, Paul faced that opposition. And, you know, Peter says, it says, doesn't it, in 1 Peter, um, it should be on the screen behind me, it says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks around like a prowling lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, standing steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the true world. So oftentimes for that, it might not be that as we go to church, we're necessarily seeing someone who is possessed and shrieking, but the devil or Satan in more subtle ways is opposing God's work here. He's sowing seeds of disunity. He's making you perhaps clash with people, making there be an unkind word. He's bringing in confusion and all the time, that's what he's seeking to do. And that's why we have to be so firm, firm in our faith, knowing what God has done, standing firm in the gospel. So um, then we go on through this account of the origin of the, um, uh, the church in Philippi and the fortune tellers, the slave owners who owned this girl who was uh, telling for- fortunes, They weren't too pleased that they'd lost their source of revenue. That was the main source of revenue that they had. So this poor girl, I mean, she'd had a life of torment, spiritual torment. Um, She wasn't, um, uh, you know, they weren't pleased to see, oh, she's finally free now. Instead, they were just thinking about their profits. And so what do they do? They haul uh, Paul and Silas in front of the authorities. They slam them in jail. um, And Paul and Silas face direct physical opposition. Direct physical opposition. I was listening to the radio this morning and um, they were talking about Aleppo and they were talking about the opposition that the Christians face there. And um, we know that in those places um, they face real opposition. They face real hard opposition. We know that they're crucifying Christians there. We know that um, atrocities are done. And this thing still goes on today. There's the persecution is still um, as, as severe today as it ever was. 
And right from the beginning, it's been that way. And it's orchestrated by Satan, and it continues right till now. So that's really the origins of the Philippian church. That's how the Philippian church started. It, was, it, was, it had a supernatural origin. God started it. God initiated that work. Um, but we know that it soon faced spiritual opposition, and then it faced physical opposition. And I think that we can learn a lot from just thinking about the origins of the Philippian church. We can learn a lot about that because we face the same things um, in our own time. Um, <clears throat> but briefly, next, I want to just consider with you um, some of the problems that face the Philippian church as well. Um, we've already said that part of the reason why Philippians is so relevant is that they face some of the same problems that we face as well. Um, I don't know whether you probably whether you do this in your jobs, but um, if you've heard of a SWOT analysis, do you have to do them? Probably some of you do. But a SWOT analysis, you have to keep doing them all the time at work. Um, and what they are basically is you look at your strengths, your weaknesses, your opportunities, and your threats. And if you did a SWOT analysis of the church in Philippi, you'd find that they had quite a few strengths. Um, they were very generous. Um, they were rich in love. Um, and they were obedient. We're going to think about that. But there were also some strong threats and some strong opposition that was facing them. They also, in Philippi, faced direct opposition. They faced direct threats. Um, if you look at um, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 28, it says, Not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. So they faced direct um, persecution, this church in Philippi. They were very vulnerable, this fledgling church. But not only, I think the second thing that they faced was not only direct persecution, but in verse 15 it says that they faced the problem of cultural assimilation. They faced the problem of becoming uh, of surrendering their distinctives and becoming uh, culturally assimilated to the culture around them. What has persecution tended to do in the history of Christianity right the way through? What has, what has been the effect of persecuting people in Christianity? Generally speaking, it's caused the gospel to explode. If you look in China, when China was persecuted... And it was like pouring diesel, basically, onto the embers of Christianity. And it literally exploded. China has literally exploded for the gospel now. There are house churches all over the place in Asia, countries where they've had communist uh, dictatorships. These kinds of places have exploded for the gospel. And they've been absolutely set on fire. Um, so it's not great if you're going through persecution. None of us really want to go through persecution. But in terms of what it tends to do for the gospel is it tends to cause it to explode and, and to thrive and to grow. But what the more, the more significant danger, and this is the danger I think that God really wants to speak more to us about, the more significant danger we face is the danger of assimilating to our culture, is the danger of surrendering those things that make us distinctive. If you look in chapter 2 and verse 15, <clears throat> it says there that you may become 
blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So that's more the threat that we face now. Um, <clears throat> I don't know, I expect you've heard this analogy, but how do you boil a frog? Do, would you know how to boil a frog? Um, well, <laughs> well, basically, um, it's have something very cold. Don't put the frog in something too warm. Put them into a cold saucepan and gradually increase the heat um, in the hob. And as you gradually increase the heat in the hob, it's kind of like a nice warm bath for the frog. Um, and the frog starts to um, kind of sink into the bath and, and relax. Um, but what happens as time goes on is the frog gets more and more sleepy. Um, and finally what happens when it gets to boiling point is um, that the frog goes unconscious. Um, <laughs> and by the point that the frog is unconscious, it's come too late for the frog to get out of the boiling saucepan. Um, and the frog is dead. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, actually, that isn't. I, I, the only thing I will say is apparently that isn't biologically true. They have done studies, apparently, contemporary biologists, and they've found out that that isn't actually the case. So I do just have to caveat that. But it is a useful illustration. <laughs> um, I don't know how they did studies on frogs to work out whether they jump out of boiling water or not, but it sounds a bit cruel to me. But, uh, <laughs> but basically, the point is is that our danger, the danger we face, we're not being crucified. When, when did you last personally know someone, personally know someone who was crucified for their faith, that you know? Anyone? Put up your hand, anyone? When were you last stopped going to church um, and you were meted at, greeted by prison, prison guards at the door? Any of you? No? No. Me neither. <laughs> that doesn't really happen, does it, here? We're kind of blessed that doesn't happen. But our danger is that we will surrender everything that God calls us to and that makes us distinctive. That is our danger. And that's, our, that's the danger in several ways, isn't it? First of all, it's a danger in terms of us surrendering our values. There are specific things we believe about certain issues as Christians which are different to the way other people see things. And you probably know some of the hot-button ones. I mean, one of them, for example is that God tells us that he values the life of the unborn. In the Bible, in Psalms, it says that God says that he knit together the child in the, in the, unborn, in, in the womb. And God says that he hates the people who shed innocent blood. So as Christians, whilst we don't want to be harsh and judgmental, that is a different way, that is a different value that we have to the world around us. And that's uncomfortable. That's very, very difficult because it kind of jars and it's uncomfortable. But God says he values life from the moment of conception. That's the difference, isn't it? There are other values and ways that God, God has a different view of marriage, for example, to what the world says around us. But God says that that's one of his values. That's a kingdom distinctive. It's a kingdom value. But, you know, it's not only about moral issues um, that we are to be distinctive, but it's also about our whole lifestyle. And sometimes I think that's something that we've lost as Christians. God calls us to a lifestyle of radical love, radical generosity, radical sacrifice. It's interesting if you look back um, through the annals of church history 
And you look at people like Hudson Taylor, and you look at people like C.T. Studd, and you look at the fact that they gave up everything that they had, that they would literally, some of these guys would, would just lie on, on their floors in their bedrooms to prepare themselves, oh, to prepare themselves for living um, abroad where they wouldn't have a bed. That's, that was the degree of radical sacrifice that they had. And we live in a Christianity which is comfortable. We don't have, none of us are really sacrificing anything. I'm not trying to put a guilt trip here, by the way. (laughs) But I think there are realities. And I think that really the threat to Philippi and the threat to us is of surrendering our distinctives, of surrendering those things that are hard that God has called us to. That is the threat we face. It's not direct physical persecution. Maybe that will come in the future. But it's surrendering those distinctives. Um, Paul says, should appear above me, Paul says um, in Romans, he says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mould. Don't let it squeeze you into, into its mould. Um, but, uh, sorry, that's a Philip's translation, so I don't know. <laughs> but let God remould your mind from within that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. So, so that distinctiveness, that being different, um, that is a key threat that we face, and that face Philippi. But I want to just talk about a few more sort of more practical uh, threats now. Um, the threats that Philippi uh, faced... They weren't only external, but they were within the church itself. So Paul says, um, Paul says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others as better than himself. The fact that Paul was instructing these Christians like that kind of, gives the impression that there must have been simmering tensions just under the surface. Don't all churches have simmering tensions just under the surface? Um, unfortunately, they do. I think we're really blessed in this church um, because, you know, I think you're all very, very loving and uh, I think that we have a great fellowship. But there are always tensions just under the surface, aren't there? We get a bit wounded sometimes, don't we? one to another and we get offended over certain things or we feel we're being overlooked and there are tensions and problems sometimes just under the surface. Um, So Paul has to instruct this group of believers about unity, about being united. And he says, you know, the key to being united is to be humble. Um, And we're going to talk a bit more about that later on. But not only um, were there these simmering tensions in that particular church, but there was a full-scale sort of catfight, really, between these two women, Iodia and Syntyche. And Paul has to said, say, I plead with Iodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Do you know, we're a really diverse church, aren't we? We're all very, very, very different people. <laughs> um, you know, we come from, we're different ethnically. Um, we're different in terms of our life experiences and our backgrounds. And it's very easy in that kind of situation for there to be some Tensions, you know, there can be issues. You know, people um, can can not feel necessarily at ease with certain types of people, or there can be be issues between them. 
Um, But Paul exhorts the Christians there. He exhorts them to be united. And that's a threat because if the church becomes engulfed by, by dissensions and divisions, then, then that threatens to completely nullify any impact that we'll have for the gospel. We have to be united and we have to pursue love. We have to love each other, even if we're coming from very different... And that's hard. We sometimes act like that's very easy. It's very easy on a Sunday morning just to say, oh, hi, how are you? Have you had a nice week? Yeah, so have I. Yeah, good. Praise God. Um, <laughs> But actually, it's about more than that. I think God wants more than that. He wants us to be really united. You can't be united with people if you don't really know them, can you? I mean, how can you be united with people you don't know? You can't really be united. United requires having a relationship with people. You actually need to know the other people at church. You need to know what's going on in their lives, what their struggles are, what their difficulties are. If you don't even know people, you cannot be united with them. None of us can be united unless we know one another, unless we're praying for one another, and unless we have each other's backs. And so one of the things God wants us to pursue, a key thing if we're to stand firm, is unity. He wants us to pursue unity. So that is the second threat. So what problems have we had? So we've had the problem of direct persecution. We've had the problem of potential problem of cultural assimilation. We've had the problem of uh, lack of unity internally. And then fourthly, or whatever, <laughs> my points have gone out of sync, uh, we find that there's the, uh, there's the threat of false teaching. There's the threat of alternate gospels being preached. And so we find in um, Philippians, we find that there was another group of Christians. If you look at Philippians 3 and verse 2, <clears throat> It says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. They're quite strong words, aren't they? They're quite strong words that Paul is... Paul isn't someone to really mince his words, I don't think. He's someone to be quite direct. Because he knows that if the gospel message itself is compromised, then the whole thing becomes pointless. We won't have any impact whatsoever. And there are many distortions of the gospel today. There are many things that are purporting to be the truth which are not the truth that we have received, um, the, the truth as we received it in Jesus. Um, and these people in Philippi, these Judaizers, were saying, you know, just believing in Jesus, just receiving his love and his grace and being right with God on the basis of grace alone and faith alone and trust in him, That's not enough. You've got to do this whole other list of things. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to fulfill the law. You've got to do all these other things. And it threatened to totally undermine the gospel of grace. And Paul dealt with that. And sometimes we have to be willing to deal with false teaching. Not in a harsh way, but sometimes we have to be willing to say, you know, that's not right. That is a distortion. And unless we do that then we, we, we kind of risk losing our distinctive message and, and, and we risk just sliding into, into kind of a morass of, of just kind of um, Christian niceties or whatever. We must, the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the only thing that can save us. Nothing else will save us. Do you know, sometimes this concerns me. I just sometimes think there must be millions of people um, in, in various places who have gone forward at crusades, who have gone forward at even Billy Graham crusades and other crusades, and they've said, I put up my hand, you know, I trust in Jesus, 
But actually, they've never really... I'm not saying Billy Graham specifically. <laughs> That's wrong. But I'm just saying there are people who go forward and they never really appreciate what the gospel is. And they think that they're saved and they sit in church week after week and they think they're right with God and they're not. So we've got to be really clear that the gospel that we preach is the one that was revealed to us. That is vital, absolutely vital. So, um, so they are the threats that the church faced. Um, you know, the false teaching, the lack of unity and the compromise. But I do want to be a bit more positive now. And um, I really want to just briefly finish on a bit more of a positive note. I want to talk about the example of the church in Philippi, just briefly. So we've talked about the origin of the church. We've talked about the problems of the church. Um, But thirdly, I want to talk about the example of the Philippian church, the example of the Philippian church. I think Paul had a really soft spot for the Philippians. I think Paul really loved the Philippians. He calls them his joy. He calls them his crown. He calls them his beloved. He really loved these people and he'd shared with these people and he'd given his life with these people in the gospel. Um, And do you know what? Philippi, in many ways, it was a model church. If you think of um, Corinth, there was lots of problems in Corinth. There was gross immorality. Um, There was complete chaos and disorder in the church. And Paul had to write a letter to them, correcting them. In Galatians, there was the danger of them falling away from the gospel to another gospel that they hadn't learned. And so Paul was always getting on to them and he was correcting them. Um, But in Philippians, what's striking is there is almost no criticism of the Philippians. There's no criticism hardly of them at all. And, and he's very positive about them. They were a model church. Um, <clears throat> and so we can learn from a model church, can't we? I don't know whether, I don't think we would be as arrogant to consider ourselves as a model church. So I think we can learn from this model church. And what can we learn? How were they a model church? Well, first of all, they're a model church in terms of their generosity. They're given above and beyond their means to the work of the gospel. Um, It says in um, Philippians 4, uh, verses 15 to 16, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. What was the purpose in writing the book of Philippians? It was really a thank you letter. Paul was saying thank you. He was saying thank you to the Philippians for sharing, for sharing their, their, you know, with him generously. And they'd sent a gift to him through Epaphroditus. Um, and Paul was thankful um, for that. Um, in um, uh, 2 Corinthians, um, he talks about the churches of Macedonia more collectively. And he says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. So these Christians, even though in themselves they were in dire straits and they were in deep poverty, they had supernaturally been generous. That was one of their defining marks as a church. And, And what makes 
What makes generosity supernatural? I think sometimes it's giving when it's hard, isn't it? It's quite easy when you've got, you know, you're fairly comfortable and you just give a little bit of it away. Or, you know, you can have a couple of, couple of quid, you know, that'll be fine. Um, but it's a lot more difficult when you're giving, when it's actually going to cause you some hardship to actually give, um, to give of yourself at a cost to yourself. Um, you remember Jesus, he talked about the widow, didn't he, and the widow's mite. And it said she's given more than everybody else because she gave all she had. Um, and I want to say that this morning. I mean, maybe some of you feel like, oh, I can't give much to the church. I haven't, you know, got, got much. Well, God's not looking at that. He's not looking at what you're giving to the church. God's looking at your heart. He's looking much more at what it costs you to give. So I just want to um, encourage you with that. But Philippi was a generous church. Um, <clears throat> but also... Um, the Philippians partnered with Paul in three other important ways. They partnered with Paul in three other important ways. First of all, look at verse 19. It says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So the first way, one of the ways that they partnered with Paul is they prayed for him. And when Paul was in prison, when he had no one else, when he was alone, And sitting in that prison cell, he knew that he was supported and carried by the prayers of the Philippians. They partnered with him in prayer. How else did they partner with him? Secondly, they suffered with him. They suffered with him. If you look at uh, verse 7, it says, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defence and confirmation of the gospel... You all are partakers with me of grace. So they prayed for him. They suffered with him. And thirdly, they remained obedient to his teachings. They remained obedient to the things Paul had taught them. If you look at um, verse 12 of chapter uh, 2, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, But now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So they partnered with Paul. They were an immensely generous church. They gave of themselves to support Paul. They prayed for Paul. They suffered with Paul. Um, All of these features of this church um, that was undergoing such, um, so many threats, Um, threatening to engulf them, threatening to overwhelm them. But despite that, God saw them through, God blessed them. And despite that, they became a model church and they became a church that we can all learn from uh, today. And so I know that today it's just been a bit of an overview of some of the the main issues, you know, coming up from from Philippians. But what I really want to do as we go into the text um, over the next few weeks is I really want to... Um, try and bolster our armory for how we can stand firm because there are threats coming. Um, there are threats within the church, there are threats outside the church um, and we need to learn how to be strong in the Lord and how to stand firm for his gospel.